Let's do it. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 12 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on December 22nd, 2019. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost, and in this episode, we'll be looking at the analytics of the Game Awards, we're going to talk the new games with goals, and in the back half of the episode, we've got an interview with Stu Grubbs, the CEO and co-founder of Lightstream, which is a streaming technology that you've probably already laid eyes on and just didn't know it. Enjoy it, guys. Well, happy holidays and merry gaming to you. Tis the season to sit down and spend some time with that backlog. If there's anything in particular that you're working your way out of just yet, what is it in this holiday time? Or are you working? Are you one of the mighty amazing people that is working your way through this holiday? And if you are, we salute you and appreciate your efforts. Whatever it is you're doing, we're here with XCP to give you some gaming goodness for your ears. And we're going to begin discussing the Xbox naming convention. Now, goodness gracious, if this topic is familiar, it's because Microsoft came out and clarified a bit about what the Xbox Series X name was going into next gen because there was a bit of confusion in the Twitterverse, in the social media standings. In the next generation, Microsoft has said, Xbox Series X, the new Xboxes, the Xbox world of next gen will be known simply as Xbox. The Series X moniker is really just a modifier or a brand identifier for whatever given time it is. I was initially confused at that. I think even in my own messaging to you guys on the show, I made it seem like it would be Xbox Series, meh, Series, meh, whatever it might be, Series L, Y, G, whatever it may be. Uh, I'll tell you what, I still like the name. I love that it's going to be just known as Xbox. I think that still captures the same message and intent that they were going for. I like the idea that we have a series modifier with, with X or L and what have you. But to put it simply, we are going to be knowing things as Xbox going forward. It'll just be the new Xbox, and then you choose whether you want the, the X and whatnot. Uh, a little bit of clarification there. Still like the naming convention. Still think that there's a bit of manufactured outrage in that. It's very simple to tablets and vehicles and all portions of technology. Uh, otherwise, we'd be on iPads 473, we'd be on the Taurus 281i, whatever it could be. So I like the idea that we have a few brand modifiers and monikers there just to go with it. And that's really all we need to say about the name because the truth is, like all things, none of us are really going to care what the name is once the product comes out. What we'll really care about is the quality, the design, the build, and most importantly, the software. Now let's talk about something a bit more analytical, the Game Awards. We talked about the winners and the losers and those snubs that may have or may have not happened a few weeks ago. Now, numbers have been released for its viewership and they are pretty darn impressive. Out on Twitter in, in the newsverse, we have viewership records of over 45.2 million people checking out global live streams. That's up 73% year over year. At its peak concurrent views, there were 7.5 million people watching the Game Awards. 15.5 million members logged on to vote, which is up 50% from the year prior. That's incredible. Think about this, guys. In 2014, the Game Awards had a 1.9 million viewership. Not even 2 million people watched the Game Awards. By 2017, that number was up to 11.5 million viewers. And now, in 2019... 
45.2 million viewers. That's incredible. Incredible. 2018 was 26.2 million, then 2019. 45.2 million. What a huge and incredible jump. That is absolutely why Microsoft chose to announce the Xbox Series X. A 45.2 million person audience, that many eyes on watching the announcement of the new Xbox. You have to imagine, one, the Game Awards brought people in, and then as articles started pinging out, they were like, oh, they announced the new Xbox, and people started tuning in even there. It's also worth noting from a very analytical and business perspective, while it might have been better in the show to launch that news later on, it makes perfect sense on the Microsoft side to announce it early on. That way you avoid leaks and you have probably peak viewership or you have at the very least the highest potential number of viewers because people aren't fading out due to commercials or time or falling asleep, what have you. The idea that they launch the new Xbox series, show it off, let everybody see what it is early on in the show, in a show that does do almost 50 million viewers, that's huge business branding. Better than any inside Xbox, Nintendo Direct, State of Play, any of those kind of one-off messages where you have a finite amount of people tuning in. When you've got such a large viewer base that are there for all different types of reasons, and they now know and understand that there is a new Xbox on the way, they've seen it, they see that incredible story trailer for Senua's Saga with that incredible music, and the idea that, that those graphical capabilities are there with the next system, that's a powerful message to have. So I would argue that this is a big score one, uh, excellent bit of news for Microsoft, and they certainly do struggle to launch systems, there's no doubt about it, but a foot in the right direction there with the, the timing of that announcement. Perhaps a small stumble with the naming messaging, I think we could call that. I don't think the naming convention is wrong with the messaging, maybe. But one of the more interesting things to come out of this whole Game Awards approach and announcement is that Phil Spencer, he read a fake script during rehearsals to help avoid leaks. And there were no leaks. There were no true leaks about this news coming into the Game Awards. That was fantastic. Now, Jeff Keighley has long been the steward of the Game Awards, and he certainly does have a lot to be proud of. If you take that audience viewership from 1.9 million and bring it all the way up to 45.2 million, there's a lot to be proud of, particularly in a five-year span. So, Hats off to Jeff Keighley once again, as all industry people should do, regardless of jokes of Kojima, Jeff Stranding, yada, yada, yada. Jeff Keighley has done some incredibly fantastic work to bring new people into the world of games and appreciate the incredible art that comes from it. He was talking to Variety, and he discussed the idea that the reason, or a lot of the reason for this viewership is that they were launching really exclusively into digital platforms. They weren't necessarily chasing the TV market. Now, Keeley did tell Variety that he is more and more confident that we shouldn't have gone onto the television route and they should have stayed exclusively digital. Certainly, the numbers do seem to support that. And he largely says that they don't really have an audience in live television anymore when the digital route is available. And I think that makes perfect sense. A lot of gamers, a lot of people that are interested in technology, they're accessing viewership by way of digital platforms anyway. They're gonna watch on their PlayStations, Xboxes, they're gonna watch on YouTube, they're gonna watch on Twitch, Mixer, etc. It makes more sense to reach those audiences and the numbers don't, don't lie. They certainly have climbed up in the rankings and now Microsoft with a foot forward into the next gen has shown their box to people. They've shown that new controller with the share button. They've talked about their technologies working and going forward and that's exciting. When we look at that share button on that new controller and we hear so much uh, with the Elite of Series 2 about how it works on the next gen systems, uh, Sony did not want to be left out in that and they announced a peripheral or an add-on to their DualShock 4 that adds a back button 
which is pretty fascinating. When I say back button, I mean that there are paddle trigger sensors in the back of the system that plug into the bottom of your DualShock with an OLED screen. Uh, I wonder if they had those left over from the ill-fated Vita. But with those back buttons, they can be programmable. So you, a person with a DualShock 4 and this add-on can program different buttons there. That sounds quite a bit like the Elite Series 2, and I'm happy for it. It does look a little strange. I certainly think it's goofy looking, but I believe it pilots the way into PlayStation 5 for Sony gamers. And I think it yet again echoes how... Microsoft, Nintendo, Xbox, they want their technologies to be iterative and they want to work them forward so that people don't opt out. If The idea that if you have to buy a new system and then buy new controllers, new cables, new this, new that, your amount of available funds to buy software, which is where money is made, is reduced there. So I'm thinking that Sony takes a wonderful cue from Xbox, adds on to their DualShock 4 to make it more viable, more compatible with future technologies going forward, and in truth, guys, since using the Elite Series 2, since using that controller for the past, uh, since November, I suppose, I love the paddle system. I have learned how to use the paddles. I was intimidated at first, and a big mistake is to use all four paddles at once. In reducing the amount of paddles, learning the paddle system, just kind of squeezing versus moving my hand off of that right stick and to press a button, it has transformed my gaming, and it feels as revolutionary as those shoulder buttons did all the way back on the SNES. Shoulder buttons were a huge leap in, in controller technology from Nintendo to Super Nintendo uh, and the various modifications for the Sega systems. But I gotta tell you, these paddle systems, the idea of back buttons on the back of the controllers where you just simply squeeze instead of moving to, to push down a button, that's exciting. I like that. I hope the DualShock 4 incorporates it. I hope that we see this paddle system incorporated into future, perhaps cheaper, Elite Series controllers. And I hope more people are able to get their hands on them because it really does change the way you access games. In my Elite Series 2, I just press a button to choose a profile because you can have up to three stored. And I've got my Halo, my Gears uh, setups there. It's wonderful. So I hope that the DualShock 4 is bringing something similar with its peripheral add-on to the PlayStation 5, kind of bridging that gap there and making it available to those Sony gamers. As we said, tis the season to be playing games, clearing out your backlog, but the truth is I bet you a lot of you guys are going to be adding to it. We are in the holiday sale time. Now, a lot of the holiday sales for this time of year mimic the Black Friday ones, but I like that. I like that a lot because it means if you regret it, if the moment the, hol the Thanksgiving sale ended, you were thinking to yourself, man, I should have gotten this or that on the Thanksgiving sale, now you can. For those who are interested, there are so many games on sale. Microsoft's has, uh, I believe, over 650 different titles. And a lot of them, at this point in the generation, you've likely already played. Or, more importantly, you probably have access to if you're a Game Pass member. I found myself scrolling through, excited to, to snag some new games, and then realized, wait, haven't played that one, but I have it via Game Pass. Got this one via Game Pass. Played this one because it was in Game Pass. And that's really cool. It's really exciting. It does kind of have like this strange effect on me though. I'm like, but I wanted to buy a game. So I ended up gifting a few to, to a few different people. Tell you what, guys. We talked about the must-play list in previous episodes. Do indeed scroll yourself through those massive game sales on whatever platform you choose. And if you have a chance to check out something like The Outer Wilds, have a chance to check out Control, Jedi Fallen Order, Gears 5, give yourself a go with them. Give yourself a go. Those are some fantastic must-play games. Blair Witch, of course, something I included into that list. Absolutely loved it. And Game Pass also affords you the chance to try out games that 
many people might not have been hot on, might have been lukewarm, but then the, the ecosystems for those kind of smaller niche games are for everybody. Sea of Thieves, Crackdown 3, two games that admittedly have their own faults, and I think a lot of people miss out on, on them because of those Metacritic and user scores, but you might find some fun in them worth checking out, giving 15, 20 minutes to because it is in Game Pass. Maybe give it a go there. Who knows? You might find some gems that you like. I know I certainly have of late. Darksiders is one I talked about uh, a week or two ago. Darksiders 3, really a gem of a game for me. It's not for everybody. It's not God's gift to gaming, but I certainly do enjoy it. Nonetheless, Game Pass is the, the, the gift of choice recommended by the insipid ghost here. Get Game Pass for people. That's how you do it. Get Game Pass and check out and just scroll through, figure out what strikes your fancy at any given time, and there you go. The predecessors to Game Pass, though, Games with Gold, have their new games for January released. Xbox gamers are going to have access to Sticks, Shards of Darkness. I've never played a Sticks game. I'm told they're quite good for, for those who enjoy stealth. We'll see. Batman the Telltale series will be in the latter half of January, and that is a must-play for all of you. Batman the Telltale series. It is in. Incredible. It's a wonderful Batman story, incredible take on the Joker, incredible take on Bruce Wayne, and most importantly, it is one of those games that leads into a wonderful second season. It's in that telltale vein, and they released a new modified version. If you already own the game, you get like a modified noir take for only 5 bucks. Otherwise, you can buy the whole series of Batman Telltale for 30 bucks with that noir package included. Bottom line, it's games with gold. Play Batman uh, Season 1, the Telltale series. Give it a go. It is fantastic. Uh, included also in Games with Gold, you'll get Tekken 6 for Xbox 360 and Lego Star Wars 2, the original trilogy, aptly timed given the Rise of Skywalker. Rise of Skywalker, there will never be any spoilers on this show. Fear not. But it is interesting to watch the box office analytical numbers and people debating what makes a movie good, bad, or whatnot. It's the same conversation that we have with video games, and I encourage all of you yet again if you, if you like it, celebrate it. If you don't like it, no problem. Move on. Plenty of entertainment out there for you. But don't base your love on something on simply a video game's review score. Don't base your love of something on a Metacritic score. Don't base your love of something on a Rotten Tomato or anything of that nature. There's no reason to. If you like it, you like it. That's awesome. Celebrate and enjoy it. Oh, goodness, we're going at breakneck pace, but it's just that time of year to do so. We've got a few listener questions for you. This one comes from the hype caster himself, Antonio Guillen, and he says, <clears throat> Why in the world is Stadia not on deep holiday sale right now? After faltering, you think they would create a new bundle, the 20% off We're Sorry bundle, the controller with a, a sub-year, three games, Destiny, Red Dead, Jedi, or something like that for 100 bucks. What Hypecaster is really asking here is, why is Stadia not doing steep discounts trying to get people in? Because, of course, if you did not know, we've seen that concurrent user bases on Stadia have been plummeting of late. And that might be exaggerated terminology. It might not. It's tough to tell, depending on what your analytical sources are out there, like what your number sources are. But concurrent players in Destiny, which is the free game on Stadia, are how a lot of people are measuring this. It was down to, at one point, 9,000 concurrent players on Destiny 2. That's a little bit scary given that like Xbox One was in the 300,000s and PlayStation 4 was in the 500,000s and then down to 9,000 over on Stadia. It is a bit unnerving. And the answer to your question, Hypecaster, is the truth is I don't think we, we want more people in the Stadia ecosystem right now. If I'm Google and I'm Stadia and I'm seeing these massive dips in numbers and nobody really jumping in, there's not enough games to really put a, out a massive sale and the technology simply is not ready, I mean, you got to imagine under the tree, you get a Stadia controller. Hey, thanks, I guess. 
it's not the time to bring more people in. What needs to happen is they need a relaunch, and they need a relaunch right around the time that the Xbox Series X, I had to think about that one, see, there it is, PlayStation 5, around that next-gen time, that's when they need to have their relaunch of Stadia. Don't call it Stadia 2, just call it Stadia, but give a whole relaunch, change your branding, change everything about it, and then you have your worst, sorry, founder edition, you know, recoup, here's X amount of games for free, that's when they do it. Because right now they can't handle it. There's no need to bring more people in there. That It's only going to get uglier for the time uh, headed out. Plus, as xCloud continues to expand into 2020, we know that in 2020 it's hitting more and more regions. More and more games are being added to it. More and more devices are being usable with xCloud. Now is the time for Stadia to just duck its head and, and ride this wave out and try to have a relaunch. Unless Google abandons it, as they often do with their technology. But xCloud's on the rise. Stadia might be in decline. It might just need to be away for a bit. That's why you don't bring more people in. Simple as that. I will tell you guys, man, holiday time, family time, traveling, whatnot, give xCloud a go. I have been playing Mark of the Ninja on xCloud exclusively because I don't actually own the game, but it's free to play with xCloud. Such a good game. Such good tech if you're on a reliable Wi-Fi. Uh, I've, I've had very intermittent mixed results using data depending on where I am. And, of course, I live out in the sticks, so what are you going to do? But definitely give that xCloud technology a go when you're able to. I know it's going to be included with Game Pass at some point. As they pilot that technology, it is well worth your time to try and get into that program, to check out that program. And if you're not in that program, I'm so sorry that I've touted it so highly. Um, sorry. I got nothing for you. <clears throat> Listener question number dos from Todd Oxtra. He says, is it time for Star Wars games to get classic HD remakes? He wants to know if we should get remakes for X-Wing versus TIE Fighter, KOTOR, Shadow of the Empire, Rogue Squadron, Dark Forces. Yes, Todd, it is time for remasters, but not at the expense of new games. I think Jedi Fallen Order and the, the impressive revitalization of Battlefront 2. We've seen re-reviews of that game recently. Battlefront 2 is garnering a lot of eyes on, saying that the game is now fixed. It is now worth your time to get in there. And because it's on deep sale, I would actually recommend it. I thoroughly enjoyed the Starfighter mode of Battlefront 2. And apparently now that the ecosystem, the economics are, are fixed with Battlefront 2 and the gameplay has been streamlined, people are jumping in more than ever. Well, pretty darn cool given the timing of The Mandalorian and Rise of Skywalker. So that's exciting. I love that with, with the, the kind of the new Battlefront 2 remake-ish version, it's relaunched for lack of a better term, uh, and Jedi Fallen Order were excited for Star Wars games again again. That's good. I love it. Is it time for new remakes? The answer is yes but not at the expense of new games. No classic game should be remade at the expense of Jedi Fallen Order 2 or something else in the Battlefront series or a new Rogue Squadron game, etc. Now, that is not necessarily how game development works. That is not how things happen in the Gamerverse. You don't, all right, we're going to get this or that. No, it, it largely depends on EA's budget and who they want to hire out to create or remake certain games. There's certainly studios that specialize in remaking. There are others that make, specialize in simply remastering and bringing things up. And then you, you could create a whole new game, a sequel for a Rogue Squadron 4. No reason we can't get both. I think there's profitability and the ability to make money using both. I would love to see a new Dark Forces game that doesn't focus on Jedi. Something The Mandalorian has taught us is that we don't need Jedi in our stories for Star Wars to be good. And many were questioning that after Rogue One and Solo. Like, do we need Jedi? Do we not? And then there was a lot of heated debate. 
Well, I would love to see a new TIE Fighter X-Wing game. That would be fantastic. Rogue Squadron as well. Wouldn't care which one. I love the Starfighter Assault Mode uh, in Battlefront 2. I talk about it all the time. I love flying ships in that Star Wars universe. The scale is incredible. Small snub fighters battling against giant space stations and warships, Star Destroyers, etc. I love it. I want more of that. Uh, a KOTOR game. We've certainly seen with the Outer Wilds, Obsidian is still very capable and, and qualified to continue that universe if they want to. Of course, you have the new Disney-verse that might change some of the canon, but there's nothing wrong with actually going back and calling it a legend. I talk about that often as well. How, what, what's the canon version of Batman? Uh, hundreds of comics, lots of different movie interpretations and video game interpretations. If you just have a separate spinoff and it doesn't need to be canon, why not? Why not have that? I would love that. You know, Make, make Force Unleashed 3 if you want to. Uh, make yourself Shadows of the Empire 2. That'd be real cool. Let's play with Dash Rendar again. He was a cool guy. That game doesn't age well, which is kind of a bummer. But I did jump on jump on a uh, GOG sale and snag a bunch of old Star Wars games to play on PC. But uh, yeah, I would love to see it. There you go. There you go. Guys, There's in the doldrum of news time, I do want to recommend you write into the show. Tweet me at InsipidGhost. Email me at InsipidGhost at gmail.com. Let me know what some of your favorite games are of 2019, Xbox or otherwise. Some of your favorite games of the decade. We're going to do a generation look back in the next episode and, and talk about some of those major heavy hitters for the, the Xbox brand or of the games that are available on the Xbox consoles family. That's what I want to look into in the next episode. You know, games like Rocket League. It's available on all consoles, but it really did come into its own as crossplay came through it. Xbox helped pilot that. Ori in the Blind Forest, who would have ever seen that as a game of the decade? Maybe Titanfall 2's in there. Who knows? Maybe Master Chief Collection as it is now. Is that one of the best games of the decade? We're going to talk about that in the next episode. So do tweet me at InsipidGhost or email me and let me know what it is you think. Now, you can always find me streaming over on Mixer.com slash InsipidGhost, but... A lot of my streams are made possible by a company and a technology from Lightstream. Now, Lightstream, they work on overlays, streaming technology. They work with analytics. They work on adjusting overlays for people who don't use a PC to stream. Streaming from my console, I route it through a web-based OBS that allows me to add different abilities, GIFs, different reactions, emotes, etc. without having to use a PC. I can do it via Chromebook, via my phone, via my tablet, all from streaming from my Xbox, so it looks highly produced and very well done. Even to the most layman like me, you can do some pretty cool things with Lightstream. Well, in this next interview, we talked to Stu Grubbs, who is the CEO and co-founder of Lightstream, about what their vision was for streaming and making streaming available to those who, like me, don't really want to get into that PC space, that war of attrition of, of, of pixel counting and making the best animation. They make it so easy. And so it made sense to me to reach out to them and say, hey, what is Lightstream? Why is it valuable to streamers and more importantly, viewers of content? Because there's a huge reach that they don't, that many people don't realize this technology has to people. With more and more people streaming every single year, Stu talks about the different platforms they want to reach with Lightstream and how they will get more eyes onto the platform, whether it's Nintendo, PlayStation, is it just a Mixer partnership? So much there, pretty fascinating. We also hear how they partnered up with Microsoft for their Mixer overlay streaming. Fascinating stuff. Uh, I am certainly not the expert, but Stu is. So strap in, enjoy this interview from Stu Grubbs, co-founder and CEO of Lightstream. Thank you for listening to the episode, everybody. Uh, happy holidays and merry gaming to you.
All righty, guys. We are very fortunate this week to be joined by Stu Grubbs, CEO and co-founder of Lightstream, a service that many of you are using, many of you have seen use, but may not be overly familiar with. Stu, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to shine light on just what Lightstream was, but I think you better than I are prepared to chat about it. What is Lightstream? Yeah. So Lightstream is a cloud-based broadcasting software for all kinds of streamers, uh, but mostly we focus on gaming because that's where most of the team started their careers. So the original problem we were trying to solve was that most of the broadcast software was just very capable, but also very technical. And so the hurdle to getting started, uh, you know, while other software was free or whatever, um, usually was pretty complicated. And if you got it to work, it still um, required a lot of maintenance. And we wanted you to spend more time creating content than fixing your stream. So we started to look at, could we build something that puts a lot of the technical aspects of streaming in the background? And that's how we started building Lightstream Studio. So the idea is that we should be able to do a couple of different things. But one, you should be able to go live in minutes. So to log in with the platform of your choice, uh, drag and drop on what you want to share and press go live. And at no time, if you needed to understand bit rates and codecs and stream keys and ingest servers. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, if we were going to build a new studio from scratch, could we put advanced production tools in the hands of a beginner? And some of that is things like our uh, green room, which allows you to send a link and bring a guest on your show. And they haven't had to install anything or, you know, met with you on Discord or Skype and, and try to screen capture that and all that. It just immediately gives you access to the camera and microphone until they close that link. Mm -hmm. And that allows you to bring up to eight guests on the show. Uh, but the, well, you know, one of those neat magic tricks of being cloud-based is, is what we accomplished with uh, Microsoft, Mixer, and Xbox. And that's that the Xbox has always been able to stream. Mm -hmm. um, well, it has for at least a generation, um, a generation of Xboxes, not people. But <laughs> mm -hmm. the, the trick, the problem was, is that you could stream from the Xbox, but your stream looked like everybody else's. It was just the gameplay. Uh, mm -hmm. Only... Um, you know, pretty recently that they had the ability to plug in a camera to that. And so if you wanted any amount of customization or production value, mm -hmm. you had to buy a $150 capture card, hook that up to a laptop you now had to put in your living room or at your desk, have complicated software running on that if you weren't using Lightstream. And, uh, and then only then could you decide, am I an Xbox streamer? <laughs> mm -hmm. And and so to remove those hurdles, uh, Xbox approached us and said, could we send the video signal from the Xbox instead of straight to the platform to your cloud-based software? Mm -hmm. And of, co of course, we were able to do that. And that's what the Mixer integration for Livestream Studio is today. Well, and so we market, to, we market to gamers of all kinds. But I think mm -hmm. the, one of the more magical things we do is, is that Xbox integration. But for us, it's about if you have a story to tell, we want to make that easy and then give you tools that allow you to do uh, things you can't do with, you know, standard desktop software. That was the big thing for me that I noticed when I, I kind of dipped my toe into that world of streaming. I, at the time, did not have a PC. I wanted to stream content from my Xbox, and I found it to be very user-friendly. It was like you guys designed it to have the almost Apple-esque approach. Like, you get it. It's a very simple OS, simple interaction, and there's a whole world of possibilities, like, underneath those layers. Yeah, we, um, we took a... A, a kind of a product thesis early on of this should unpack facility the way that a good game unpacks facility. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't start a game and have 87 weapons with uh, each with, you know, three different modes and all these other things, right? You, mm -hmm. you start the game by learning to duck under 
uh, you know, one thing and jump over the log and then learn to run a little bit. And then you get your first weapon, you learn it does a couple different things. And then by the end of the weapon, you, or sorry, by the end of the game, you have 87 weapons on your back with all these settings and capabilities and force mm -hmm. powers and whatever. Um, so we wanted that the studio to be a little bit like that, um, where you came in and as a beginner, you were able to immediately do the main thing you want to do, which is start streaming. And you're able to start streaming feeling like a pro. You've got your graphics on there. Um, you've got overlays, alerts, and your camera and your gameplay, and you're able to go. Then over time, you start to realize, oh, I can not only bring in my gameplay, but because it's cloud-based, I can bring in my friend's gameplay, and we could do side-by-side -side streaming. So if we're running, you know, duos or something, and and uh, uh, in one of the you know games, uh, you could show the community both of our perspectives as we zero in on a target. Mm -hmm. And so it then. We thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if you could bring guests on your show uh, with just a simple link instead of having to use third-party software to have a voice chat and bring all that in? And so we started to explore that, and uh, and then it just kept growing from there. But those are things you discover, you know, a as you go, as opposed to something that's kind of, you know, if you've ever opened OBS, it's a powerful piece of software and a great piece of software, but there are so many things to touch right away, mm -hmm. and you don't know which word, you know, uh, which one to start with. So anyway, that and was that was how we got started and where, kind of what our thinking was. That's that that matches so well to so many times that I think as we as gamers or content creators or those who just view con content in general, if you're consuming it, the options are wonderful if they're not overwhelming. And it seems like right. that is the the method of which you guys were approaching it. Now, you you mentioned that Xbox reached out to you guys in finding a way to send, you know, Xbox streaming to you. How long from their approach to bringing it to customers, to gamers, uh, to utilize. What's the timeline in that? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's there's several pieces that have to, um, on the business side as well. Microsoft's a large company. Um, there's a lot to navigate when partnering with a small company out of Chicago like us. Mm -hmm. And so their original approach was they, I was giving a talk at, uh, I think actually one of the Twitch cons mm -hmm. um, a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. And I uh, got off the stage and uh, next to it, I said, we'd love for you to come visit us in Redmond and talk about some ideas we have. Mm -hmm. And so that was uh, the fall of 2016. Mm -hmm. And then it would be eight months later that we were talking. Uh, it took about eight to 12 months to talk about all the ways that we could possibly partner. Mm -hmm. Um and then it was decided that, okay, we're ready to do this. We understand what we want to do next. So let's get a licensing agreement in place. And what does that mean? And what does that look like? And so that takes time as well. And only then do you start the engineering aspect. And so that's where Mixer's team started looking at, you know, how do we get an Xbox feed over to Lightstream? How does Lightstream return that feed after it's edited, edited according to the user's instructions, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're talking probably... And we were supposed to get that out by the holiday season of uh, uh, of that year, 2017. Um, mm -hmm. And then it launched April of 2018 uh, in reality. And mm -hmm. that's because just um, in order to do something right, and especially at the scale of Microsoft, um, you know, think about all the Xbox gamers, everyone on Mixer. Um, mm -hmm. And that's why we have initially, and then we ended up limiting it to Mixer Pro subscribers. Um, mm -hmm. But to deliver at that scale takes uh, a heck of an effort. And to do that well and where all the data is secure and all those things that, you know, you want to think about when you're when you're delivering something like that to, to the users. So 
Gosh, that brings up so many different questions, and I'm I'm ripe with choices <laughs> for what to ask you there. So you have a turnaround time. You, you you kind of have a chat in 16, and you're out the door April of 2018. Uh, that's a lot of time for engineering talk, you know, licensing, as you said. Uh, it sounds like game development, oddly enough, to have a target date and then push and adjust here and there. Uh, do you guys look back on that time, and and how much have you learned from when you were approached to the licensing process all the way from from launch of two, in 2018 to now and then looking ahead into 2020 how much have you guys learned in that process an enormous amount i mean i think you know that was one of the first big lessons in in working with a company that size as a small mm -hmm. company navigating um, all the different things that we needed to discuss to appropriately partner so i think now that we know those things that process might have gone much quicker mm -hmm. um, there were also other ideas that Microsoft had on how to work with us. They had ideas around uh, more than just Mixer. They had ideas around, uh, you know, Xbox as a whole. So there was a lot of creative discussion in there that was way more than the engineering time. The engineering time, by the time we decided on we're going to do this first and we're going to get it done, was maybe maybe six to nine months. Um, mm -hmm. So a lot of that was figuring out what is everything that Lightstream, Mixer, Xbox, Microsoft could do together. Um, mm -hmm. From an engineering perspective, I mean, these days, Microsoft created the opportunity for us to really scale rapidly. I mean, we got battle tested right away. Um, mm -hmm. We were supposed to originally launch to a very small audience. Then it was everyone in Mixer Pro. And then Microsoft, I don't know if you remember, uh, Memorial Day of 2018, Microsoft ran a, uh, Mixer ran a promotion that uh, you got Mixer Pro if you just for a couple months if you came to the website that weekend. And, I remember that. Yeah, and we were part of Mixer Pro. And they forgot. So suddenly we went from only a thousand to two thousand people have access to thousands and thousands and thousands suddenly got access, and we had a we went from uh, two to five data centers in under five days. Um, wow. Our team slept at the office, and um, you know Microsoft gave us the choice. You know, do you want to wait and we can delay giving out the promotion rewards? Or mm -hmm. do you want to be ready by Friday? And we said, well, we'll be ready by Friday. This is awesome. So let's give it a shot. And what does that like do 200... for? What, I'm sorry. What does that go, do for a company? I didn't mean to cut you off, but like, what does that do for your mindset there as a team that's trying to bring, you know, your product, your service to roughly a thousand people, and then scale up so dramatically? <laughs> well, you know, I think the first time you get the news, you're like, oh no, <laughs> and there's a real moment there where you're like, can we do this? I think, you know, as Mostly engineers, product people, designers, um, but by far mostly engineers. Mm -hmm. It is an opportunity to see thousands of people enjoy something you've been working on for years. I mean, remember mm -hmm. at this point in 2018, it's our fourth year of working as a team together. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, it's a little bit bigger. We're about at that time we we're about 13 people, mm -hmm. um, but we were ready to see people really use this thing and use mm -hmm. it in all the different ways we imagined. So for us, it was it became pure excitement. I think that's the only way. I didn't ask the team to stay at the office. I asked them, do we want to delay or do we want to try and make this Friday? And the, and the team made the decision to, they said, let's see, let's see, let's turn on the jets and watch people use this. And so it became a thing of excitement. Um, mm -hmm. And then of course, uh, all the work you have to do to, to maintain it as it continues to grow at that pace. So. How many people, so so one of the questions I have for you is, of course, how do analytics play a role in bringing your service to users? But before you answer that, I, I have to know, you have a lot of people within Mixer Pro having access, taking advantage of these, these services to varying degrees, I'm sure. 
How many people are seeing Lightstream technology and don't know it, do you think? <laughs> um, well, I think there's probably quite a few on other areas of our business where we do licensing. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of people have asked, you know, um, why have we delayed charging for studio? Um, mm-hmm. Well, it's always been a paid service. Technically, mm-hmm. Microsoft is licensing that on behalf of the Mixer community and then mm-hmm. adding that into the Mixer Pro. That's why that's why it requires Mixer Pro. Um, it's, it's a paid service. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, But a lot of our other licensing works in the background. Uh, what we really are is a cloud-native video manipulation engine. Um, okay. So you can send us video, and we can manipulate that in under a quarter second according to your instructions. And so there's a lot of – I don't know how many people are using it that don't know. I think on the Mixer side, it's interesting because it's not a white-label partnership. You know, mm-hmm. this isn't Mixer Studio. Um, this is, you know, still the Lightstream integration. You go and enable the Lightstream Studio integration. There's lots of mentions our name. I, I do think that people forget they're using it. Um, mm-hmm. We, uh, our analytics show that I think almost half of all Mixer streamers um, actually don't have Studio open while they're streaming. They, they, they leave it closed. They've set it. They forgot it. Uh, their video comes up from their Xbox through Lightstream Studio, where you know we remember the what the you know what their composites are, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, they can use the remote control on their phone to switch scenes and stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's some it's something like fifty percent. Um, you know, I wouldn't quote me on that, but I, I remember just recently we were talking about it, it was like somewhere between like yeah, it hovers around fifty percent of people that stream uh, without studio open at all uh, most it's, of the time. Yeah, and anecdotally, that's what I do. I go in and set my overlays for anyone that's seen me stream. I go in and set the overlays, and I do not actually open Go Light Stream whilst I work. I don't need the studio open whilst I stream, uh, but I do have access to it very quickly. I like to set the scenes and then just enjoy the game, enjoy playing. Uh, and, and, how, that's a, and how powerful is that? I mean, how how powerful is that for your mindset while you're while you're creating? It's it strikes me as the realization of your goal because I am not a PC person by nature. That is not something I actually enjoy. I, I am not the guy who likes to build his PCs, who likes to mess around with OBS, who likes to manipulate that. I just want to play and play with people. And so I think that's what drew me to the technology, what made me excited about it, what made me want to talk to you. It it is powerful because it's so user friendly for those who are just detached from from wanting to set it all up. I, you know, I used to use a phrase um, or an idea when I worked at SteelSeries years ago. Um, so I used to run global marketing with a team over there, a group of people. And one of the things we used to talk about was that a peripheral, like a headphone or a mouse or a keyboard, should mm-hmm. be designed so well that you literally forget you're using it. Mm-hmm. If you've designed a good headset, they shouldn't remember it. SteelSeries, they shouldn't even remember they were wearing it mm-hmm. <laughs> until they take it off again, right? And I think similarly... If our system's working well and you're able to set up what you want to be displayed during your stream mm-hmm. and then focus on creating content, not tweaking, not fixing different things, not mm-hmm. resetting up, but just focus on creating, telling great stories. Our, our vision for the company has always been to empower more storytellers and grow the communities in which they tell them. And that's how we think about every single streamer that uses Studio. That's how we think of... Uh, every different category of streaming, if you think about it like that. Um, and so w- the the crux of that, right, is that you should mainly be able to focus on telling that story, on, mm-hmm. on doing the thing that you came to do. And so uh, I'm really happy to hear that that's exactly how you're using it. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun little anecdotal piece. Now, I, I do want to go back to the question, 
how much do analytics play a role in in what you guys do day to day in piloting new technologies and then maybe sunsetting features that 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 gamers aren't using or streamers aren't using? Yeah, I mean, data plays a huge role, I think, in any technical product like ours. But um, you know, most of the team believes that you know what doesn't get measured uh, doesn't get improved, and mm. so. When you think about our cloud technology, if you ever get the chance to visit the office, you can see a, a number of TVs that display uh, just how many video engines are live globally, just how many uh, open ingests are waiting for signal, how many broadcasts are live at any given time, what is the signal strength quality of each of those, you know, all, all parts of our infrastructure are, are up on the wall and available for display. Mm -hmm. On the product side, you know, we we try to look at, you know, how people are using it, how are scenes constructed, you know, mm -hmm. not not in terms of what's in them, but what are the components of of our most uh, successful creators, meaning are our most successful creators, the people that just put gameplay on a camera or our mm -hmm. most successful creators have 37 overlays two alert services and you know, whatever, um, which, you know, we've seen all kinds of crazy stuff. But to be able to look at that is to understand how are creators actually using the product, right? And then, mm -hmm. of course, on the marketing side, I mean, anything we do across social, we're not a big marketing company. Uh, there's two, you know, two or three of us with real marketing experience on the team. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, it's not my job to be a marketer, but I, I contribute where I can. Mm -hmm. uh, we use analytics across that whole um, uh, uh, that whole effort, and most of it though is community driven, and that's. Uh, and all of that is measured as well. So I, I don't think you can be successful um, in life or in business without a healthy amount of analytics. And when I say life, I, I do mean that what doesn't get measured in your life as well doesn't improve. You know, if you're not looking at, you know, what you eat and how you exercise and what kind of content do I consume every day and how does that make my does that affect my, you know, my brain and how I think and how I perceive the world and how I communicate? <laughs> so uh, same thing in business. I, you can't, if you don't understand the problem, how are you ever going to solve it? It's a good point. And it's funny, you know, you're saying this, I'm listening to each one of your, your statements, but I can't get away from that quote. You said, you know, what isn't being measured can't be improved. And I have to imagine that in a world where you are influxing video capture from people uh, and, and sending it back out, where you're having to talk to different teams across different mediums, having to talk to big companies, small companies in order to make it work, that that has to maintain truth throughout. You know, that's that's powerful. Uh, when I look, Stu, at, at the website, I look under products and I see studio, I see Lightstream studio on Mixer. Arsenal, which does focus on analytics. You guys seem to be more than just what I've brought up here on the show thus far, which, and I've kind of focused on the gaming side. Is there more to Lightstream that I'm not aware of or that people are, are missing out on? <laughs> um, yeah, so Studio to Exist requires uh, a set of technologies that each of them, um, each their own, have value. And what I mean by that is, studio that you've used you go in and that is an interface for our cloud engine right mm -hmm. as soon as you you arrange everything inside of your browser uh you press go live and that's when one of our video engines takes that job and says okay time to layer all this stuff together and send that off to to mixer mm -hmm. um and so that cloud engine is a unique piece of technology it's the world's fastest and most cost effective uh cloud video engine um mm -hmm. at least what we believe um, because we've been working on it a long time and everyone said we were crazy when we started, <laughs> but it works now and it works really well and um, we're really happy with it. And so we, we thought to ourselves, 
know, studio is great for the individual person. That's great for me. Uh, it's great for you to use for Xbox. It's great for all the creators that we have. Um, but the cloud engine actually could be used in, in, in probably ways we haven't even thought of. So mm -hmm. what if we let um, bigger client, you know, bigger customers uh, use the API? So we've seen a drone company uh, that wanted to ingest, you know, 26 feeds from 26 different drones and then use the data that those drones are observing to swap between different video signals. Um, mm -hmm. So this in particular was used to monitor uh, the beach for uh, hazards, uh, which is really interesting. So there's like um, all kinds of crazy ways that having a having a cloud native video engine um, could be used. The SDK that you see, um, we've worked with several game studios and hardware manufacturers. They've used part of our technology, which is that SDK, uh, mm -hmm. to add live streaming or highlight clipping as a native function of their software. So mm -hmm. if you think about it right now, if you're a community manager for a game, you have to go out there and say, okay, community, um, I know you're having a lot of fun with the game. I want you to install this you know, third-party software that's going to save clips of your gameplay because not everyone's a streamer, so not everyone gets clips from their live stream. You know, the, mm -hmm. I want you, but then you can sit, but everyone wants to share their experience. And so this allows them to build that feature directly into the game and mm -hmm. they can either expose that as a button that's saved this clip or they can use the game data to just automatically save clips of awesome moments. And mm -hmm. so that's... Um, both of those, Lightstream Cloud and Lightstream's uh, Game Streaming Development Kit, or GSDK, are both mm -hmm. technologies we had to build anyway to get Studio to work um, the way it does. So we really just branded two subparts of our subcomponents of our technology um, for enterprise, if you think about it that way. Um, and then but going back to Studio, um, obviously Studio is just, uh, it's been incredible to watch how people use it. And so we thought, okay, if, if our first goal with the company was to, can we make it easy? And once we make it easy, can we provide new creative possibilities by being you know, cloud native? And if we've made it easy, that means we've invited a lot of new streamers into the space. But what's the second part of your journey? It's to identify and grow your audience. You know, mm -hmm. what's working? What's not? What games have got me more viewers? What day of the week gets me more viewers? What time of day gets me more viewers? And that's exactly what Arsenal is. I mean, you are able to log in and see all the analytics for your channel and your live streams and say, okay, I played this game for three hours and no one showed up, but I played that game and, you know, I got 10 to 20 viewers on it. Or mm -hmm. something like that. And so you can start to, you know, we were just talking about this, right? And what doesn't get measured doesn't get improved. So if you're not paying attention to your analytics as a streamer, I think you're you're greatly stunting your growth rate. I think mm -hmm. you could be moving so much faster faster as a creator if you're looking at what works. Um, this you know, I don't have to actually you know even prove this point. And if you just look back at how TV how the TV business has worked for years, they look at the ratings, they look how people perceive the content they're creating, and then work to improve that so mm -hmm. that their audiences grow. And so that's what audience is. And we're able to provide that for free. Um, and the reason we're able to provide that for free to individual creators uh, is that we are also trying to create um, economic opportunity in the space by licensing that data to brands. So brands can now come in and see who they want to sponsor. Um, we launched a feature last year called Key Delivery. So as a game studio, you used to give out a thousand keys, track all those in a spreadsheet, Hope mm -hmm. that people streamed your game, but you never really knew if everyone used it. So you really just paid attention to maybe the top streamers in your database. Sure. And it was a very manual process, all managed through Google Sheets. Now, uh, I, as a game studio, can upload a thousand keys into Arsenal. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I can set eligibility requirements. So you need to have, you know, maybe 20 concurrent viewers on average and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And if you come in and see my game and say, I want a key and your arsenal data says you uh, meet the eligibility requirements, you automatically get the key delivered to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't, then it goes into a queue that the game studio can manually approve. But at the end of that, all of those streamers that accepted the key are added to a report. So that community manager at that game studio can say, oh, Stu did stream my game and in fact got mm-hmm. some viewers and he streamed my game for about 20 hours, which is more, you know, makes me more than happy that he at least checked it out, you know, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And it becomes a lot less. So by doing that, that community manager now feels more safe investing in the space. You know, they feel like they can go to their boss and say, hey, I got the game out there. Look at the numbers we got. I think we're going to do well or, you know, or I think we should tweak this. Mm-hmm. And it becomes... And so with that confidence, that brings more people into the space, more people wanting to invest. And, and so um, that's what Arsenal is. It's all about, you know, audience analytics. And, um, and what we consider phase three is audience engagement. And I think you'll see some pretty cool stuff come out of us around audience engagement and monetization that should allow streamers to see economic opportunity far earlier in their journey than is possible today. I think, you know, it's really, you know, True meaningful dollars are relegated to the top one percent of streamers, and mm-hmm. I think that's you know uh, I think we can create economic opportunity for much more than that, um, and that's something we're working on. That data has to be valuable on a number of different levels to the community managers in the studios because those codes do cost money and can uh, cost smaller studios or or, or uh, less capable studios providing those keys to people but also in helping the content creators say, all right, if I'm not doing this well enough or I need to focus more on this area, it it disassociates, it makes it less personal uh, in some ways and then allows, because it does go into that queue, allows for that personal approach to also be there. And I imagine it it makes audiences feel safer if they recognize that this this person is qualifying under certain aspects of it. Yeah, I mean, the small to medium-sized streamers have these really engaged audiences. Um, They have these really cool communities. They're not trying to be big. Not everyone wants to be, you know, the next Shroud or Ninja. You know, mm-hmm. some people want to stream to a small, passionate audience. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that their voice isn't any less powerful, especially in aggregate with all the other small to medium-sized streamers. Mm-hmm. It's like you could be really effective at influencing the community uh, at that scale. And so if, when just using the key delivery example, if you're in a manual process, you may not stop by some of the smaller streamers uh, streams to validate their key usage because it's so manual. And how are you going to check on a thousand different channels you get keys mm-hmm. out to? But what you might see in an Arsenal report is that there's this one streamer who has 20 concurrent viewers, but streamed uh, you know 100 some odd hours of your game, and you know had this many viewers over this much time. And all of a sudden, you can see their impact. And you hadn't had to, you didn't have to go manually check in. And now you know to reach out. Now you know to support that streamer. And so you can start to see where uh, community managers, if you scale up the community manager's visibility, they can suddenly start to look at more streamers than just that top 1%. And by default, talk to that community that is interested yep. in their product. That's brilliant. I love that. I love that. This is so cool. I started this conversation because I was fascinated by the the way that Lightstream intakes FTL, you know, streaming and sends it back out, and it's still so quick and fast. And the idea that I can put overlays into to, to streams without having a PC, and I can manipulate it on my phone, all of those things were what I was fascinated by. And to learn all of this is even cooler. 
The idea, I am so fascinated again by the idea of a company coming in and looking at your technology and using different drone feeds to monitor a beach. You have to imagine <laughs> there are possibilities of, of monitoring sports, of monitoring live streams. I'm thinking about like Mixer's hype zone where they pull in the top streamers of this, you know, the, the top 10 of, of Fortnite or, or of PUBG or something like that. The idea that you could just capture massive amounts of just big moments onto a stream and bring that in there. The possibilities really go beyond gaming, but are ripe for opportunity in gaming. Yeah. You know, a friend of mine said years ago, um, she's part of the Facebook video team. Um, she said, there's only a few things that are interesting live and uh, in terms of, you know, news, sports or interactive and interactive mm -hmm. includes gaming, mm -hmm. but really all other content live wouldn't be that interesting. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think that we've always been, we are a passionate set of gamers. I've spent my entire career in gaming. Mm -hmm. Um, so is most of our team. And so this is where our focus has been, but I think you're right. I think long-term it'd be uh, foolish of us for not to recognize, uh, the opportunity elsewhere. Uh, we've been working with live view on some stuff that I think is really interesting around the IRL space, which includes, um, live stream travel, uh, live stream, uh, you know, obviously the news packs to sell, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, sports is interesting for us. I think a lot of sports have a lot of money. And so they, you know, they would use um, on-site infrastructure stuff, but on-premise is what we call it. But the um, really like the idea of online education. I think that pre-recorded video and online education assumes that everyone who buys your class learns the same way. Mm -hmm. But if you could speak dynamically to the audience and they're asking questions in chat, then that means the coursework becomes dynamic and suddenly mm -hmm. everyone's getting smarter because that one kid asked the right question and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So I, I'm really excited about where that could go one day too. But for now, um, you're, we're really happy in the gaming community. It's where we came from. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, but you're, you're absolutely right. Lots of, lots of potential. As a teacher, you're hitting all the right buzzwords for me, man. So I'm excited by that concept. <laughs> uh, I do, to, to kind of round out our conversation on gaming, you mentioned earlier SteelSeries and that good tech is forgotten whilst you use it. And I, I so can't echo that enough. And, and I, I do love their headsets and mice. It's, it's really cool to see that. And I don't remember that I'm using Lightstream a lot when I bring my content from my Xbox. Uh, Mr. Badbit wrote in uh, to the show with a question. He runs a trophy. He runs the Trophy Room, which is a PlayStation podcast. He's curious if you guys are planning to bring your tech over to PlayStation. Are there conversations about moving Lightstream beyond uh, Mixer on the console space, as far as like comfortable integration? Where do those conversations come to bring in other platforms apart from the Xbox Mixer <laughs> conversation? Yeah. So uh, a couple things packed in there, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Get excited. No. No. No, it's perfectly fine. I think the, you know, it's complicated to talk about Xbox on other platforms because obviously, you know, while they are separate business units inside of Microsoft, uh, you know, Xbox wants to be supportive of Mixer and vice versa. Mm -hmm. I do think there's uh, an, a, a huge part of the community that would love to see our integration work on other platforms. And ultimately that's a conversation we keep having, um, you know, we'll keep having with Microsoft and, you know, it may make sense. Um, but that's, you know, ultimately up to them. Lightstream mm -hmm. Studio as a whole does work with any platform, including custom platforms. So you know, there are a number of streamers that stream to their own websites, their own communities on, um, 
uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, from life coaches to fitness people to whatever, but you have the um, ability to go to a custom destination, not just the four major platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, on the console side, we have had varying conversations with PlayStation and Nintendo over the years. Um, I think, you know, personally, there are a couple challenges with doing things our way on a PlayStation um, and the Xbox. So the reason why the Xbox is able to stream to Lightstream is because it's part of the native operating system. Mm-hmm. Um, when a game runs on when a game runs on the Xbox or runs on the PlayStation, they shut down any other apps. Like all power of the box is going to the game on both mm-hmm. consoles. And so you can't just write an app for PlayStation because if, if we wrote the Lightstream app for Xbox or the Lightstream app for PlayStation, as soon mm-hmm. as a game was run, it would kill that app. <laughs> so uh, we have to get a conversation with the native OS team. Um, and, you know, we met with PlayStation at E3 uh, a couple times. Um, I think we got, you know, another one coming up this year. Um, and the timing was has to be right. Uh, you know, you also have to imagine that as the new consoles coming out, it's harder to get the attention of anyone on a team like that as they're mm-hmm. focused on creating the best new uh, console they can. Mm-hmm. Um, but my favorite idea ever is the idea of everything you've seen with the mixer integration, but with mm-hmm. a switch. I just think the switch could be such a cool portable streaming kit, mm-hmm. um, especially since it has a touch screen. Um, we even toyed around with the idea of like, could we put touch controls for studio onto a switch and then could the switch wirelessly send up to our cloud system and you have your full gaming rig as a traveling streamer and your switch. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's one of my favorite ideas. I don't know that we would ever, Nintendo, um, is very hesitant around streaming in general. So mm-hmm. I'd wonder if we'd ever get that idea pushed through, but yeah, thought I'd share okay. it. <laughs> okay, so separate from from the Nintendo one is my kind of closing question for you. Does xCloud or Stadia enter into this conversation? Does it manipulate data or, or I, I, it is a tough question to ask. I guess to say, does it change the game for you guys? Does it change the way you would build your technology? I mean, the, the reality is, is we're ideally built for a Stadia or an xCloud streaming solution. Mm-hmm. The reason is, is we're already in the cloud. You know, one of the things we've always talked about is that once video gets up to the cloud, it should stay there. So, okay. um, and I, there's a couple of different examples of of that on the non-gaming side. But what's interesting about cloud-based gaming is that you already have a server somewhere that's generating frames of the video game so that you can see the game. And they have to send those frames back to you, right, on whatever mm-hmm. device you're gaming on. Sure. Um, so what they could also do is just duplicate those frames and send those over to Livestream. And so you could have a completely cloud-based gaming rig while also having a completely cloud-based uh, streaming software. And so at no time has the video had to come off the cloud, which could degrade the quality or lower the latency. So it would be literally the lowest latency streaming setup possible because that, those frames would come right over live stream. We would, of course, uh, I don't know if you know this, but our compositor is under a quarter second um, and then send that off to the platform of your choice. Uh, it could be a really powerful setup. I mean, you could think about the possibilities. Are you sitting anywhere with a tablet and being able to stream a, you know, uh, a full quality PC game or Xbox game or whatever, uh, or Stadia game straight mm-hmm. to your channel of choice with no more than that tablet and a controller. And I just think that's like 
I mean, if you think about the giant rigs that people have these days mm-hmm. and, and some of those streamers can never leave because one day off the platform could really hurt their growth. But mm-hmm. if you could make, you know, I'm not saying that everyone should permanently stream from a very mobile setup like I'm describing. But what having the option. Is that, yes, exactly. Freeing them up from the tether that is their desk um, and allowing them to say, you know, go visit their family for a month over the holidays and not worry about how their audience might have disappeared by January mm-hmm. could be really powerful for a lot of people, I think. And uh, and maybe also help them share some new experiences that they don't typically share on the channel, like, you know, like the travel or whatever. So um, at any rate, I think I think if anything, cloud gaming, uh, we're the ideal broadcasting solution for cloud gaming. That's incredible. As we are built today. We, I don't think we need to build anything new to be able to support that. Man, out the gate. That is that is. So exciting and truly very enlightening. I I entered this conversation, as I said, with kind of one set of questions in mind, and I just peeled off in a whole other direction. I Stu, I can't thank you enough <laughs> for your time. This is so exciting and so cool to hear. Uh, will you please, please, please let people know where they can find out more about Lightstream, whether they want to get started with it, whether they just want to investigate what it might be, uh, if they maybe are already even watching it. Let them know where to find you guys. Yeah, so on Twitter, we're at Lightstream. And if you'd like to check us out, it's golightstream.com. Uh, or if you're looking to check out the stats for your channel and start to take a data-driven approach to your growth, it's arsenal.gg. Um, but yeah, you can, I'd say at Lightstream for all the latest news on, on Twitter. Thanks for having me. This was great. Absolutely. Stu Grubb, CEO, co-founder of Lightstream. Thank you for being on this uh, episode of XCP, man. And, and we appreciate your time. Thank you.